<laughs> so we'll be in Acts chapter 20 today. If you want to turn to verse 18, that's where we'll be. Have you guys found that often it's realization that precedes action? That you have to recognize something before you'll actually act on it? Um, like you need to know that you're really sick before you'll go to the doctor, that it's not going to just clear up on its own. Uh, you need that grave diagnosis before you'll take real serious radical changes in your diet or exercise routines, right? We're like, yeah, yeah, I'm still waiting for that grave diagnosis. I, I have no intention to change until I absolutely have to. Um, we have to realize that we're, we're practicing sin before we repent. We have to realize that we are holding a grudge before we forgive. We have to realize that our clothes are fitting a bit snug before we'll start exercising or just buy different clothes. Um, so the question is, what does it take to move us? What does it take to motivate us? Uh, you can watch a movie and be moved. You can see injustice and be moved. You can think of a positive reason to move, you know, to get off the lounge and do something. And it may be that you really don't care about your health as much as your personal appearance. That's what you value. You may value, you know, thinking of a young guy, you know, your massive pectorals or biceps that's going to get you to the gym. Um, or to impress someone, but not because you want to be particularly healthy. You just want to look a certain way. But from a spiritual perspective, what does it take to move us? What prompted you at the beginning to come to Jesus and to repent of your sins? And then the follow-on is, when you serve the Lord and you choose to pray and to read your Bible, what motivates you to do those things? What moves you to take another step in faith in God? What's the driver? And I imagine that our motives can be different day to day. Perhaps one day it's out of obligation. But another day we realize we've neglected it. And we've neglected personal holiness and, and seeking to uh, walk as sanctified before the Lord. And when self begins to creep in, we have these mixed motives that are not pure. And it takes realizing that for us to, again, repent and say, Lord, I want to do things the right way. I want to do, I want to live my life in the way that fully pleases you. And God wants to bring us to a place where our lives are not dictated and, and moved by circumstances, where my faith and my obedience to God is based upon how I feel, or because what I can get out of it, potentially, but because it is pleasing to God, and it's love of Him and obedience to His Word that moves me. It's because God is great. It's because the gospel is awesome that we share it, not because we have to, that it's a a duty or a burden. We serve God because he is awesome and great, not because we want to be. And may the Lord begin to show us where we have those motives that are impure, that need to be addressed, repented of, where Jesus becomes our life, and increasingly more so. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you tell us the truth and your truth doesn't change. 
that your word deals with not just our actions, the things we avoid or the things we do, but the attitudes and the intents of our hearts. Thank you that you alone know these things and you're able to probe to the exact spot where we need a touch from you, where we need your light to shine. And thank you that you're faithful to do that, Lord, whether we like it or not. And I pray that you would just minister to every heart here today, that would be quickened by the Holy Spirit, and you would cause me to speak your truth. Lord, thank you for those who uh, desire to draw near, and even for those, Lord, who who are quite done with uh, appearances. I pray that you would bring us to that place of reliance and trust upon you, in obedience to your word, and rejoicing, Lord, that you are good. And your ways are perfect in Jesus' name. Amen. The setting for our passage is in the middle of Paul's third missionary journey. He's returning to Jerusalem. Uh, We read in Acts 20.16, For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Paul wanted to be in Jerusalem by the day of Pentecost. He clearly wasn't there by Passover, but he really wanted to be there. And he knew that if he went through Ephesus, there would be meetings and gatherings and, and uh, you know, hospitality. And it was just, it wasn't feasible. And so he called the elders to meet him. He says, hey guys, I want to talk to you. Come and meet me at Miletus. So it's about 65 to 80 Ks away. It's a bit of a hike, but many came. And Today we read this address that he gave them, which is a very rare one where Paul's addressing believers, starting in verse 18 of Acts 20. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know, from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept nothing back that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. He speaks to people who knew him, whom he had lived among. Some of them perhaps he had won to Christ over the three years he had been with them in Ephesus, and he faithfully served the Lord, ministering to both Jews and Greeks, Gentiles. And he reminded them of the manner in which he lived. So it wasn't just... Remember that I, you know me and I lived with you, but remember the manner that I lived among you. That I, I lived humbly. I had many trials and tears. It wasn't always easy. There were some hard things and how I did not hold back anything that was helpful. And this was very challenging to me. Can we honestly say I have held nothing back that was helpful? I think there's few who can. I think if when I examine my own heart, I'm like, yeah, I have definitely held back at times. I've held back from saying something. I've held back from doing something. I have held back. But Paul said, I have not held back anything that was helpful. I sought to edify the church. I sought to bless. I sought to instruct. If there was a word of rebuke, I gave that word. If there was instruction, I gave that instruction. I didn't hold back. He didn't abandon them when times were tough. There was an agreement between the life of Paul and the message that he shared with them. And publicly, from house to house, and privately, he proclaimed, taught, and testified to all of what? Repentance 
and faith towards Christ. There's a lot of themes that Paul could have preached on. But he preached repentance before God and faith in God. And he did so for three years faithfully. He said, if I could just sum up the theme, you know, you have a theme for one message. Well, he said, if I could sum up everything, what I emphasized was repentance before God and faith in Jesus Christ. He doesn't give place to fables or speculation, politics, promoting philosophy, his own opinions. He says, repentance and faith. And if he could preach on that theme for three years, it follows that he could preach on a theme for 30 years and on, and he never had to leave that theme because this is the fundamentals that we need. Repentance before God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We will never be beyond our need of the gospel to live out the implications of the gospel that God has so loved me and God has so given to me his own son that the knowledge of that love that God has shown that he has now shed abroad in our hearts through the spirit that is to move us the love of God the greatness of God not because of the benefits we receive from him and it's it's helpful isn't it for us to be exhorted to not hold back in following Jesus. It's easy to hold back, to hold something back. You know, Ananias and Sapphira, they held back something. Um, speaking for myself, I know at times I have held back from saying things because I was thinking about the audience, how it might be taken. I was thinking about, well, that could, that could potentially be offensive. I think it's the truth. But let's just wait and see. Instead of, following the prompting of the Holy Spirit who was pressing something upon me to say or to do. It's necessary for us to be reminded to repent. It's profitable for us to seek to grow in faith. Have you ever had a break from physical exercise? I know not everyone is, is uh, you know, into athletics or exercise, but let's say you, there was something you were you used to do and you used to be pretty competent at it. When you had a bit of a layoff and you come back to it, you're a bit rusty. You, and if it's lifting weights, you try to do the things you used to do a couple of years before, and you're like puffed and sore and like, whoa, I am out of shape. That didn't click until you tried to exert yourself again, right? You didn't realize how out of shape you were until you tried to do something you used to be able to do. And we can be that way with exercising faith in Jesus. Because we can live our lives in such a way where we're not intentionally having to step out in faith, in obedience to God in an area that makes us uncomfortable. And then you're like, wow. Now you try to share the gospel and they say one sentence and you're like, okay, whoa, I really don't know how to respond to that. I used to mix it up with people. I used to have an answer for the hope that's in me, but now I'm, I'm a bit rusty. I need to look up that scripture again. Where is that verse? <laughs> Knowledge of doctrine is no substitute for trusting and obeying God. But it can pass for it sometimes. We think that's enough because we know something. But are we walking in truth? That's, that's the real, where the rubber meets the road to cl- use a cliche. Acts 20, verse 22. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life 
dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul often called himself a bondservant of Jesus Christ, and that was someone who voluntarily chose a life of slavery to their master because they loved their master. They could go free, but because they loved their master, they said, I want to stay with this master for the remainder of my life. My whole life I will give in service to this master. So this slavery that Paul identified with, he had been freed from the slavery of sin and death, the bondage that held him, and he decided, I am going to spend my life in service of Jesus. I am his slave now, and I'm bound in the Spirit. Someone who used to be bound in sin and iniquity, now he's bound in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is controlling his life. Of course, he has an option to grieve the Spirit, disobey the Spirit, or walk in the Spirit. He chooses to obey the Spirit. He says, I'm going up to Jerusalem. I don't know what my future holds. But everyone that I talk to, the Holy Spirit says through them that it means chains and imprisonment for me. As a slave of Jesus, he was bound to obey. And some see this as contradictory, like Paul must not have been hearing from the Holy Spirit to go up to Jerusalem. Because the Holy Spirit is warning him through these other believers that, whoa, there's chains and tribulations. Don't go. Well, was Jesus wrong to go up to Jerusalem when he knew crucifixion and betrayal awaited him there? It was certainly the right thing for him to do. Though Peter said, it shall not happen to you. That wasn't the Holy Spirit speaking. That was the devil through him. But this was a step, just like Jesus going up to Jerusalem, going up to the feast. This was a step that Paul needed to take in obedience to God, and he would do it. It would accomplish the purpose that God intended. And sometimes when we do the will of God and we're obedient to him, guess what? It can mean trials and tribulations. He will allow that. It's part of his plan. We can't explain it or we, we definitely don't want that. But know that we can take heart because when we do exactly what God has said, that's where we find rest in his will. Tribulations of many kinds await us, but they're all according to God's will, that he allows them to happen. Right? God's not willing that any should perish, but he allowed his son to perish so we could live. It's pretty remarkable how God takes the, the schemes of Satan and he can turn them around for life, for eternity. In the face of imprisonment, tribulation, death, even in the face of his brethren who said, don't go up, to Jerusalem, reconsider, he said, none of these things move me. That is a powerful statement. He didn't have a heart of stone. He was a a soft-hearted guy. He was a tough guy, but he had a soft heart. But he would not be deterred to do what the Spirit had led him to do because the preservation of his own life was not as important as testifying the truth of the gospel. Again, very confronting, isn't it? The things that would easily move us, like, well, you know, these brothers, they're they're solid. I know they're filled with the Spirit, and they're telling me one thing. But that didn't move him. Chains, imprisonment, being hindered from, he wanted to be sharing the gospel, free to do that, and, and yet there were chains in front of him. That didn't move him. 
What moved him? The Holy Spirit moved him and empowered him to move on. He was determined to finish his race with joy, even though the finish line was somewhere past Jerusalem and he had to go through Jerusalem to get there. His love for the Lord, the ministry God committed to him, his responsibility to obey, his delight in the gospel, all overshadowed by God's love for Paul. He, he valued it, uh, the love that God shed abroad upon his heart. So that's the question is, is it the love of God that moves us? Or does that really have any impact on us at all in doing what we do? Why we do what we do? And when I say love, I don't mean the fleeting emotion, the feelings of love, but that it would be God's goodness and his love toward me that moves me to take action for his sake, for him. Paul didn't keep sharing the gospel because he was good at it, because there was a lot of visible benefits from what he did. Now, when you're back to the exercise analogy, it's really nice and it's a motivator when we can step on the scale. We've, we've been making some adjustments in our diet and exercise and we see benefits where we can say, I have shed 10 kilos. Whoa, that's good, right? And that can motivate you to continue. But let me tell you, when you're making sacrifices and you're denying yourself and you stand on that scale and you gain two pounds, you're like, well, what am I doing? Why am I putting myself through this rubbish? You're like, what? This is ridiculous. I've totally been there. Where you're just not really motivated to keep sacrificing, to keep giving, to keep investing, because you're not seeing any tangible results. And you're saying, what's the point anyway? And we can be like this when it comes to sharing the gospel, when it comes to walking out in faith. You step out in faith, tribulation. You step out in faith, trials, tears, difficulties. And we say, whoa. That's not what I'm interested in. This is not the way. This can't be God's will. But it can be. We can look at the life of Paul. We can look at the life of the disciples. And it's not based upon the responses of others or how we feel about it. But are we bound in the Spirit, led by the Spirit, yielded to the Spirit to do what God is speaking to us? And if it becomes difficult to teach that Bible study or to go to that prayer meeting because not many people seem to be going, it seems those motives are misplaced. Because we don't pray because there's a gathering of people. We don't teach a study because of the multitudes that love our style or our, our approach to Scripture. It's because God has bound us to do that. And we're bound in the Spirit to do so and delight to do so regardless our lives, aren't they a gift from God? Everything that we have, everything we possess. And how good it is when we reach a point where our ambitions, our careers, our families, our bodies, our, our desires are not what move us anymore. It's not those external, temporary, perishing things that, that dictate how we live and what we do. But the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the love of Jesus Christ for us. I used to run cross-country, and in my mind, when he talks about finishing his race with joy, I, I'm like, the only joy is that the race is over. Because there's nothing fun 
about running till you almost throw up and the training and the hills. And it is brutal. It's brutal some of the things we would go through. Nothing fun, grueling, hard work. The flesh hates giving way for spiritual pursuits. It will resist that. It will hate that. But the benefit outweighs any amount of pains that we endure. Because the Lord is with us, isn't he? He's the one guiding us. He's the one sustaining us. He's the one enabling us to do anything for him. What a joy it is to know that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. All of us. He's made us his ambassadors of the spiritual kingdom to exhort others to walk in holiness, to realize the privilege we have to speak to God, to be called by his name, to serve him in any way. The gospel isn't a trophy to adorn your shelf, like, yes, I've run my race, here's my badge of honor. No, it's a, it's a prize to rejoice in, to be led by, and to share. I like what's, what uh, Guzik said. He quoted Spurgeon in the Enduring Word Commentary. He said, There used to be a gospel in the world which provoked enthusiasm and commanded service. Tens of thousands have met together to hear this gospel at peril of their lives. Men to the teeth of tyrants have proclaimed it and suffered the loss of all things and gone to prison and to death for it, singing psalms all the while. Is there not such a gospel remaining? Well, the gospel hasn't changed. That is a great statement, that the gospel should provoke enthusiasm. Because we have received such gift from God that we could be redeemed, that we could be free, that we could have new life and a hope that endures. The rest, there is a rest for us in heaven, but there's a rest for us when we choose to do God's will today. So rest for us, yes, life is full of toil and labors. And this is good because God made man to work. And he has made a way for us to glorify him in our work, whatever that may be. But there is a rest for us when we're in the will of God, when we're bound in the spirit, when we're convinced and equipped by him to do his will. Acts 20, verse 25, And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Paul drops a bomb on these uh, elders from Ephesus. He says, You will see my face no more. This is likely the last time we will ever see each other. And that was shocking to them. When I think about the last time you see someone, quite often you don't know that that's the last time you're going to see someone. Most times it's only after the fact they realize that was the last time I would see that person. And so they're just really filled with emotion at this time, thinking about it. He said that I have been preaching the kingdom of God among you For three years he had preached. It says in Acts 19.10, all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So that's a lot of effort that he put forth. But really, it was the work of God. God did this excellent work through Paul, 
and those to whom he spoke the gospel, that they shared the gospel. Everyone had heard the name of Jesus in that area. This kingdom of God that he preached, it's a spiritual kingdom that's within the grasp of all people today. Jesus said, this kingdom can be within us. It's where he takes residence in our hearts, and that's where he's enthroned as our king. But there's also a day when Jesus will return, and he will set up his kingdom on earth. And then there's ultimately the eternal rest that we have in Christ, where he sets up in a new heaven and a new earth where only righteousness dwells. We look for this kingdom. And he did not hold back from proclaiming the teach and teaching God's word. And he says, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Why? Because he did not shun to declare the whole counsel of God. We know that he's not just an evangelist or a missionary. He's also a pastor because Paul really shepherded that flock If there was a word of correction, he was willing to give it. If there was a warning, we'll see that he gave those warnings too. He encouraged the believers. He led by example. He didn't ignore passages of Scripture that could be offensive or maybe a bit difficult to understand. The implication of Paul's statement is those who shun or who hold back from sharing the whole counsel of God's word are not innocent before God. So he says, I'm innocent of the blood of all men, because I've told you the whole truth. I haven't held back. At Calvary Chapel, our aim is to teach through the whole word of God, the whole counsel of God. That's why we teach through the scriptures. But it means very little if we do not practice uh, the obedience to God's word privately, publicly, and house to house, right? We have to actually apply the things that we learn and read. It's not a good application of this passage to look down upon or to denigrate other groups or denominations or people who preach differently or who study through the Bible topically or something like that. The challenge is, can each of us say with Paul, I am innocent of the blood of all men because I have not held back. I have not shunned to speak the whole truth. Very convicting this statement, because I know at times I have held back. I have considered the audience rather than considering what God has said. How about you? Can we pick and choose based upon our feelings or the audience to whom we speak? How many times could we have shared the gospel, but we, ah, it's probably not the right time. How many times could we have testified of the awesome things God has done, but we just talked about other things. We never, we weren't really trying to take the conversation there. There was no intentional desire to, to share that new thing God's taught you from the word because, ah, well, this person doesn't know. Man, I hold back. And God's just put his finger on that in my life. How many times can we substitute our own opinions for the word of God? Where it's not about God's counsel anymore, but it's about what I think. Or my experience. Or what I have to say. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38 and 39. 
there's a word here that's the same word that we just read, the word for shun. He's like, I have not shunned from giving you the whole gospel. Hebrews 10, verse 38 and 39, it's written, Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Paul said he did not shun to declare the whole counsel of God and the words draw back. That's the same Greek word. And it says if you draw back, that God's soul has no pleasure in that person. So it's like we please God when we speak forth the whole counsel of his word. But when we draw back, when we hold back, when we shun to declare the whole truth, whatever our motive may be, that's not pleasing to God. God takes pleasure at the one who does not shrink back from doing all that God has said. And Paul was not shrinking back, was he? As he's going to Jerusalem. He's like, I know there's going to be trouble. I don't exactly know how this is going to go down, but I'm going there because I'm bound in the Spirit. I'm not going to shrink back from going, just like I didn't shrink back from giving you the whole counsel of God. Back to Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch, and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Verse 28 is a great proof verse to show the deity of Jesus because the Father is a spirit, so how can he have blood? But God has purchased the church with his own blood, pointing to Jesus Christ as being God. Paul continues, he exhorts the believers to take heed to themselves and to all the flock. The order is very important. We kind of get this backwards, naturally. We pay attention to everyone else. Well, what about him? Well, you take heed to yourself. <laughs> take heed to yourself first. Get that plank that's in your eye removed before you start picking on everyone else's specks in their eye. Matthew 7. Jesus spoke of that. Take heed to yourself. Make sure you're walking in truth. Make sure you are not holding back from what you ought to be doing. And take heed to all the flock. All, not just some, all of them. Be on the lookout for one another. And then shepherd the church of God. Not a shepherd who flees at the sight of trouble, a hireling that's just there as a, as a job, but, or, or to drive the sheep, but to lead the sheep, to be gentle, to lead by example. The final exhortation, to be on guard and watchful. That was a job of the shepherd, to make sure that the sheep were not getting into noxious weeds, that they weren't picking on each other, that, that they were uh, all accounted for, that they weren't wandering off or sick, that there weren't thieves or, or wild animals coming in and scattering the sheep. They would have to be watchful for those things. You know, the sheep are just looking to eat and drink and sleep. They're not really paying attention to that. But he says, guys, you need to be on guard. You need to be watchful. And while we are not all ordained 
uh, of men to be overseers, we're all responsible to take heed to ourselves and to all the flock. This is applicable because we're to love God and to love one another as he loved us. And he loves us like that, that he cares about us. He's watching out for us. That we put the needs of others above our own desires. If you're married, you have a responsibility to uh, care for your spouse. If he's given you children, your job is to care for them and to raise them and nurture them, to discipline them. And if you have grandchildren, well, you have a role there too. And if you're an employee or a boss, depending on where you are, God has things where before him you're responsible. And he says, after my departure, savage wolves will come into the flock from outside. And from among yourselves, these seemingly faithful men who traveled all that way to talk to him, from among yourselves, among the the church, there would be people who rose up to draw away disciples after themselves, rather than Jesus. And this, verse 31, it's pretty amazing. He says, night and day, for three years, I've warned you about this with tears. So this isn't just the only time he's mentioned this potential, like, all right, guys, it's been pretty cool when I've been, you know, an overseer of this fellowship. But now that I'm going, things could be tough. You need to be on guard. No, this was woven throughout his discourses throughout the whole time he was there. There were wolves who sought to tear the body apart, scatter the flock. And our enemy employs tactics which long have been effective. You strike the shepherd to scatter the sheep. You pick off the weak, the wounded, the wandering, or you stir up some fearful sheep to start biting one another. And and uh, that's actually a behavior that you find in sheep where they will start wool pulling. They'll start picking on one, and they'll all kind of pick on that one until the sheep can actually be completely denuded without any wool at all. So if the sheep, if the shepherd sees this going on, these behaviors among the sheep, he'll separate them. He'll discipline them. He'll move them apart. And he'll get them so they're, they're okay and they're not just, you know, mob mentality with each other. So let's be on guard. Verse 32. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. He commended the believers to God in the word of his grace. That word commend, it means to place alongside, to present, or to deposit. So he's really transferring his leadership and saying, I am stepping out of the way and I'm placing you upon the Lord and upon his word because that's all you need to grow and thrive. And that's a that's a faithful saying. That That's the simplicity of the gospel, that we need the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the Lord. He can, he will save us. He will uphold us. He will enable us to do everything. That they were not lacking without Paul's leadership because they had the word, they had God, and they had one another. They were still part of the body of Jesus Christ. 
And so they weren't lacking any good thing. The dangers and the persecution of the early church were very real, as they are to this day, but God would protect them. He would provide for them. And we can have that confidence now in the Lord. They didn't need Paul to flourish, just like Dumbo in the Disney cartoon did not need the magic feather to fly. Right? He had it within him. And those massive ears. Now, we don't need a particular leader to grow or flourish in our knowledge or in our understanding. Praise the Lord, he's given us one another, though. I rejoice in the fellowship we can share together. We have a a loving Heavenly Father. We have a risen Savior in Jesus Christ. And we have the Holy Spirit taking up residence within us. We have a sure inheritance and a glorious future and new bodies that await us that don't have diabetes or cancer or they don't get old and creaky and tired. And how that will enable us to serve the Lord gloriously. I mean, would to God at the end of our, toward the end of our race or even today, we could say, I have a clear conscience before God and man that I have done what God has called me to do. And I'm going to finish my race with joy, whatever befalls me. Chains, imprisonment, death. That doesn't move me. I'm bound in the Spirit. Like the prophet Samuel before Saul became king and stepped away from the leadership role, that's what uh, similar to what Paul does here. He says, I haven't taken anything from anybody. I haven't been in the ministry to profit financially. I haven't coveted things from you. No one could rightly say he served in the ministry for money because he worked with his hands to support himself, and he supported the weak. So he didn't work just to live, but he also worked to give, and that should mark the life of a believer. That we do work to live, but with the resources God provides, we can freely give. And this was nothing new. Paul was not giving any new doctrine. He says, you've heard this and seen it demonstrated by Jesus, our Savior, who said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Paul would write in Ephesians 4.28, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. It is more blessed to give than to receive. But let me say this, it's also a blessing to receive, isn't it? And we need to receive the wisdom of God. We need to receive edification and uh, correction from others. And we need to receive the tribulations even that God should allow us to endure. We don't think of tribulations as being a gift from God, but when we see the end result and what he accomplishes, he can redeem it for that purpose. I've been reading a a biography about Hudson Taylor, and there was a line that just grabbed me. It said that he was learning to think of God as the one great circumstance of life and of all lesser external circumstances as necessarily the kindest, wisest, best, because either ordered or permitted by him. Now, what a perspective. That every circumstance of life, and this is a man who suffered many privations, 
and the loss of his own culture and going into a foreign land and the things that he endured with the loss of family who died. And, and he said, you know, the things that God has allowed, they are the kindest, wisest, and best because they were ordered or permitted by him. See, that's a high view of God, isn't it? To say God is so good and so awesome and the things that he designs and allows that this is the best possible way when you're facing impossibilities and just terrible things. And from the world's perspective, unredeemable things. But that's what God does. He redeems and he saves and he preserves. And as he's walking towards chains, he's walking towards imprisonment, and the Ephesian church faced a future without Paul's leadership, they had all they needed in God and his word to thrive, both of them, apart from one another. So praise the Lord for his sustaining grace. Verse 36, And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most for, of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more, and they accompanied him to the ship. Paul knelt with the elders of the church in Ephesus. He prayed with them all. They were all moved to tears. They hugged and kissed him. They were sad at this parting because they realized it would be the last time they saw him. You think about the many hard things that that Paul had said and how he had warned them for years about the dangers that existed. And He had been the one correcting. He had been the one instructing and teaching. And I don't know about you, but if you have someone in your life who's always instructing you or correcting you or warning you, how do you feel about that person? Do you feel really close to them? Do you want to see them all the time? Like, oh man, he's just going to tell me how messed up I am. What I got to change now? But you see the love there. It was genuine. They're, they're, they are really sad that they're not going to see this man again because they loved him. Because of the, he, it's like the Lord had won them through the love of God in Paul's life. And they were like, man. They didn't want to be without him. But they knew that, hey, when he says he's going to do something, he's going to follow through with it. We've known this much. Nothing has deterred him until now. And this this threat or the certainty of chains and imprisonment and death is not going to hinder him by God's grace. This made me think, you know, in our hearts, honestly, is there anyone that if they said, this is the last time you're going to see me, you'd kind of be glad? Let's be honest. Like, oh, yeah, probably. You know what? Good riddance. We can be like that, can't we? But that's not how these believers were. That's not how Paul was. God forbid. We're called to be one in Christ. I don't want to be anyone guilty of driving apart what Jesus has joined together. Even though we may be unloved by others, even though others may have hurt us, God loves us. His Spirit indwells us, and His love has been shed abroad in our hearts without limit, without measure. It's just overflowing in our lives. So may that be true, that we would... Because love is never content at a distance. 
When there's love, there's a desire to draw close. There's a desire to be with one another. And if there's those that you're not feeling that way about, seek the Lord and may he speak to you. Don't hold back loving people as Jesus has loved us. The love of God has drawn us to him and may his love through us draw others to him and unite us in his name. Could you please turn to Hebrews chapter 12, 14 through 16? Something that the Lord has, has been really impressing upon my heart uh, on a personal level is the need to practice and to desire holiness, to be, to be seeking purity in my own heart and mind and lifestyle at a greater level. So Hebrews 12, 14 through 16. The scriptures say that if we walk in the spirit, we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And quite often we can be walking in the flesh and just try to not give place to the flesh. But that's the problem. You you walk in the spirit and that takes care of the flesh. In the flesh, we can never do the things God commands, right? We can't do the right thing for the right motive. But if we're walking in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh because it's the Spirit of God that's leading us and empowering us. So Hebrews 12, 14 through 16, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. The root word for peace here, it means to join. So this agreement that we see between Paul and the leaders at Ephesus, you know, the the embracing, the love, and and the desire they had to be with one another, we should have that agreement with brothers and sisters in Christ. And if we're moved by the Lord, we're walking with him, we will experience joy. We will have fruitfulness together. Thinking about fitness, it's easy to become a bit sloppy with our physical fitness because we're like, you know, I've been going to, you know, you get the gym membership and then you don't go to the gym. Or you go to the gym, but you really, it's just ticking a box. It's not much heart in it. And I've seen that unless I'm careful, I can become sloppy with my time management or the things that I will think about. Uh, discipline concerning bedtime and rising at a certain hour to pray. Personal study. These things can fall by the wayside over time. And you know what shows us that we're, we're, we're spiritually unhealthy? It's when we struggle to, to do as Paul did. Being bound in the Spirit. And we, we refuse the correction, even of the Lord. If we don't pursue peace or holiness, the consequence is we will not see the Lord. Our perspective will be skewed. That log in our eye is going to hinder us from seeing the Lord working in our life or how he, sh- how he is leading us. And bitterness, it says, it can be a weed that sprouts in our lives. It spreads seed everywhere. And the comparison of bitterness is... It's as bad as prostituting yourself. I mean, that sounds a lot worse to me. But it says, 
the example is Esau as a profane or fornicator, a profane person. That was the issue with Esau. He, he chose to feed the flesh rather than valuing his birthright, what God had given him. So it's good to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's good to claim him as our Lord and Savior. What is the manner of our following? Do you still count your life dear to yourself? Or are you in a season, in a season where, you know, well, I guess I am. Are we keeping back what's helpful? These are the sort of questions that have come out of the message for me. Am I pursuing peace and holiness as I repent, bound by the Spirit to obey? May that mark us. Like Paul saying, you know what? I am going to do what God has told me. I am going to be obedient. And I, I pray the Lord would purify us all to walk in the way that pleases him, that the love of God and the gospel would lead us in taking heed to ourselves and to the flock, holding nothing back. So let me urge you, brothers and sisters, don't hold back from what the Lord has said. As he's moving you, be yielding to him, not moved by circumstances, but by his goodness. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are so good to us, that you have people in Scripture uh, that both warn us and provide an example of how we ought to live. Thank you for Paul's example and the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, who went ahead headed on to Calvary knowing what, what awaited him because he was obedient to you. And Lord, I pray in our own lives that we would be those who do not count our lives dear to ourselves, that we do not hold back from the whole counsel of the word of God, and that we do pursue holiness uh, and peace with one another. We're so grateful, Lord, for the way that you speak to us, how you do tailor things for our need, uh, just customized for our our hearts and minds. Thank you that you are altogether good and holy and righteous. And Lord, I pray that you would fill us again with your spirit. Lord, guide us into all truth. Cause us to live in the way that fully pleases you, that we would be as Paul, who was humble and submissive, who was not greedy for gain or ambitious, but sought to to honor you with his life. And Lord, I cannot do this and we cannot do this except you do it in us. And Lord, we yield to you today. We just lay down our cares at your feet, all the uh, what-ifs we throw aside uh, for the joy of following Jesus, for the joy of knowing you better, and to serve you, to be called by your name. What a privilege, what a joy. We rejoice in you, Father, and praise you in our Savior's name. Amen.